0: who are you and, and where are you from like from Goulburn? Oh, what are you going to go do? R- write a book. Like you, you, you who are you? Like, you're no one that you're You're a shy kid who, you know, played in a safe area, was good at that, but you're not good enough to be out. there. You're not one of the big boys. That was another key script that kind of played in my mind. Well, you're the kid that tries hard, but never quite succeeds. That was an interesting story that I kind of wrote for myself early on in, in sporting days, um, I was always the kid that tried hard, but never won. And that just became how I identified myself. So this idea of pushing beyond what I'd experienced, I, I encountered the limits of my storytelling and, and my narrative for how I identified myself. Um, so it was deeply troubling and and I felt like this monster inside me.
1: Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance, and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy To Perform, international speaker, and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns.
2: On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with the author of Unhindered, a TEDx speaker, former church pastor turned life coach and founder of the Insecurity Project. He studied a Bachelor of Theology from ACOM and also one from the University of Sydney along with a postgraduate certificate in leadership. He has a Diploma of Life Coaching from the Coaching Institute as well. His career has included obviously being a church pastor for 10 years and being a senior partner in Fraser Homes Coaching and is currently the owner of Jamin Fraser and Associates and the Insecurity Project. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a person who loves helping entrepreneurs, leaders and business owners solve their insecurity problem. The voice behind the One Minute Coach radio segment in Australia and also the host of the Insecurity Project podcast Jamin Fraser. Jamin, welcome to the show. Hi Craig, thanks very much for having me. Uh, It's a real pleasure and and it's good to uh, catch up with you on a day where you're in Goulburn, which is in between Canberra and Sydney in Australia for those listening in uh, from around the world. I'm curious to know, where did you grow up and what was your favorite memory as a child? Mm, So I grew up not far from here. Uh, a little
0: town of 150 people called Collector between Canberra and Goulburn. Uh, so my parents were farmers. Uh, so had had a great experience growing up in farm life. Um, my favourite experience as a child, my favourite ever growing up experience. That's that's an interesting question. Um, look, I think I think it, it would always go back to um, I, I, I enjoy my own company. So it was off wandering in the bush, making my own adventures, building cubby houses, uh, hunting rabbits. Um, yeah, I think they would be the moments that I've looked back most fondly of my childhood growing up in Collector.
2: Yeah, So the opportunity for a bit of solitude and, and reflection yeah. as well?
0: Uh, absolutely, yeah, I love that. I love thinking, um, always been a thinker, always been curious about why things work. So uh, yeah, probably more of an introvert than an extrovert. So a bit of alone time. It was always fun,
2: and so when you you found you had those those questions or problems, uh, you know, sort of during those formative sort of teenage years, who would be the go to person for advice on on life and why?
0: I mean, growing up in church, that was a really integral part of my uh, my early years. My parents were strong Christians and modelled something really practical and and beautiful about their faith that that was very attractive, and so I, I loved church. Um, youth group was always a really great experience as a, as a young youngster growing up, a very safe place to uh, experience um, yeah friendships and relationships and a, and a safe place to bring challenges to. So always had really great youth leaders that I looked up to um, that were, were great to talk to about problems and questions. So I felt like I was really lucky for mentors and, and leaders in my world from a young age.
2: Yeah, that's great. And, and even though you had these great mentors and leaders from that young age, um, you have now built a career around being a life coach, but what I'm really curious about was what was your insecurity that led you to devote your life to helping people uncover their own personal insecurity?
0: Mm, Yeah, it's interesting because I kind of, I I was a good pastor. Like I, I became a pastor. I grew up in the church and then took over the church that I grew up in at 23. And so, um, for ten years, was the pastor of that church, and and I think you know I was kind of a natural leader, even though um, I wasn't always overtly confident. I was confident in my own ability to do the right thing and to lead by example. So I think I was quite a natural leader and was a good pastor, um, but I was a pretty frustrated pastor at the same time because as pastor you're invited into people's world all the time to have conversations about change. And I was frequently astounded about how little change I saw, um, typically because, um, you know, Christians often outsource the change work to God. So if I if I have faith, if I pray, if I just trust and believe, God will magically take care of the rest. So I just created this deep dissatisfaction in how effective I was being, which led me to think about something bigger. And I got introduced to the coaching skill set from a mentor of mine, um, you know, a bit over of- 10 or 12 years ago. And I was instantly compelled that that was something that I needed more of, and it was a missing technology. So dived into some study, thought that this is really, this is really me. Um, and just felt so drawn to learn the skills, both for my own development, and then to be actually really useful in facilitating change. Um, and that's when I discovered insecurity because that was outside the domain that I'd ever experienced. Um, church world was safe i knew that i knew how to play in that space i didn't know how to play in the business space the coaching space Um, i had this idea of writing a book uh, early on and and you know coaching world's pretty hyped up it's a possibility space you can do whatever you want Um, you know so no one was saying no don't write a book everyone was saying go write a book so i did and i can remember the day i wrote the first chapter of my first book and Boldly told my wife and my best friend about this dream I had to, you know, make a difference in the world, and you know, could see it so clearly. But then the act of actually committing to that and starting that process, all of so much energy and excitement. Uh, except the moment I shut the lid on that laptop at eleven o'clock at night, <laughs> that night, all that energy turned to fear and dread, and holy shit, what have I done? Like now I've put it out there, and what if I can't? What if I? What if I fail? What if no one cares? What if this is a disaster? And so I think it was the act of stepping up and out that then exposed a whole bunch of limiting beliefs and insecurities about myself that I'd never seen before. So that's really where it, it came to the surface. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. And, and it's interesting as human beings, right? A lot of the default for human beings is to fall into their comfort zone. But, but as you know, right, the, the growth occurs when you step outside into that new stratosphere. But that's when you start getting the devil and the angel on each on shoulder right? And, and talking to you and you start having these amazing conversations. Are you able to go a little bit deeper into the that insecurity insecurity of what you were feeling at that time around, you know, what if no one cares? Um, have I made a big mistake, et cetera? And then how did you overcome that?
0: yeah sure so some of the interesting scripts that were kind of running through our mind is hang on a minute who are you and, and where are you from like from Goulburn oh what are you going to go do R- write a book like you, you, you who are you like you're no one that yeah you're, you're a shy kid who you know played in a safe area was good at that but you're not good enough to be out. there. You're not one of the big boys. That was another key script that kind of played in my mind. Well, you're the kid that tries hard, but never quite succeeds. That was an interesting story that I kind of wrote for myself early on in, in sporting days. Um, I was always the kid that tried hard, but never won. And that just became how I identified myself. So Mm. this idea of pushing beyond what I'd experienced, I, I encountered the limits of my storytelling and, and my narrative for how I identified myself. Um, so it was deeply troubling and, and I felt like this monster inside me that was, uh, I, I just kind of thought if I don't find a way to dismantle this or face this fear, it feels catastrophic. It feels like it could be game over. Um, you know, I I, observe, I love observing people and I'm curious about why they do what they do. And I, I, at, uh, this was probably 30 years of age. I'd already observed a whole bunch of people who seemed to me to have given up on a dream for their life. And I just thought I I could see how that happens. I could see how you reach for something, you get scared, and then you decide that, no, no, I'll just settle back to where it's safe. So I thought that could happen to me too. Um, That would be a disaster. I couldn't think of anything worse. So I I have to discover, can insecurity be solved or is it something you just manage? Has anyone ever solved this? Um, And so that began this quest. And thankfully, I was in the coaching environment because that's where I was training, and so it was a good place to go looking for the answers to those questions. And um, discovered a bunch of incredible things. And um, you know, to fast forward all the way to now, the, the the book that I've written, the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity, is kind of the sum total of all that I experienced in what transformed my life uh, in in that moment. And um, but it, yeah, it was based on what I'd saw for others who was who already sold this. How do they do it? How could I deconstruct that and, and make a model out of it that I could replicate? And um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened for me.
2: So before we, you know, un- unearth those seven essentials, and we will talk about those a little bit later on, I, re- I would like to know what innate characteristics do, do you believe bring out the best of you as a coach?
0: um well i would say the the great challenge of every coach and and counselor and psychologist is not to confuse the world about who the hero is so um i think that's there are lots of people who go into the help space based on um, I would say their own insecurity and the fact that they feel like they can boost their ego by being, by rescuing others, by being needed by others, by being the one with the answers. So I would say it's very easy to become that kind of person in this space, which is the great, the great trap because that in fact disempowers clients and weakens people and um, is part of the problem, not the solution. So I would say the only way to be a great coach, Uh, Is to not need to solve the problem. If you come in with an agenda, uh, you're not you're not safe. You can't hold a clean space. So I think that requires you to solve your own insecurity. So there's nothing to prove and nothing to defend. Um, It does require you to embody your message. I think um, you know I I do call myself a life coach. I don't like that term because it's so dirty. Um, you get on a networking meeting and you say you're a life coach, you're now down below, you know, multi level marketers in terms of social status. Um, however, it is what I do and it is the skill set that's required. Um, but the only way to make it as a life coach in an unregulated industry is to embody your message because mm. people just go, Well, I'll watch you and I'll see. Are you smoking what you're selling? Um, if these tools are so good, how are they working for you? Um, So long answer to your question, but I would say that the skills and qualities would be you have to embody it and you, you have to be secure so that you don't get in the way.
2: And that's really interesting, you know, for people who haven't been a coach before, probably an easy way to maybe see this in action is if you watch a sporting coach. And if you kind of see what's happening when the team wins, it's the Athletes uh, um, take all the success. If the athletes don't perform and the team doesn't perform, it's all on you as a coach. So, as a coach, you—if you are you ego-driven—you're going to fail because you—and—and you, and if performance is your outcome that you're looking for, or, or the or the accolades around the performance, you're not going to get them because it's always going to be around the people that you're assisting and you're helping and the environment you're creating. And then you've got to be able to deal with the real challenging times when they knock on your door and say, "Well, you're the you're the problem to why they didn't yeah. perform today." So, and it's the same as a life coach or a performance coach. In the end, you have to be able to take that step back and be someone that is there to guide people and and give them ask them the questions that allow them to to bring out their own um, right. solutions to their problem. So how would how would your clients describe your coaching style? Wow. Uh,
0: well, I, like my my very first job when I get the privilege of coaching someone, my, day one I have to convince them I don't give a shit about them, and I say that loudly and on purpose in as many ways as I can. Um, I say, I know I look like someone who cares. You cannot confuse me for someone who cares. I'll forget about you. I won't lose any sleep over you. I'm not the one with the problem, you know, so don't think I, you know, I'm not impacted by your pain. So I'm not here to fix you. Um, I'm not another person who wants you to do something you don't want to do, Uh, but you tell me what you want and I'll give you everything I've got to serve that agenda. As long as you want it, happy to give you all my heart. So I I would say my clients would describe me as this paradox of, of, of really not caring. I think, I think my superpower is the ability to have a clean conversation and really hold a clean space at the same time while bringing my whole heart and soul Mm -hmm. so i would say every one of my clients feels um the intensity of the energy that i bring to that space they they feel like i i care but i don't care (laughs) if that makes sense um that yeah
2: yeah so it means that if we if we did a strengths assessment on your empathy wouldn't be sitting in your top five then
0: uh, I just like I'm a, I'm naturally a very empathetic person. I just realised a long time ago that caring about someone else's results was the least useful I could possibly be to them as a coach, because it would mean I would get in the way. Mm-hmm. I'd be then inclined to encourage them and support them and and ride the journey with them, and I would get in the way. So I just said, this is you. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I think I, I have the ability to separate me naturally as empathetic from my role as a coach, not empathetic.
2: Yeah, I like that. I like This It's a good approach. And, and you know, that's a, that's a challenge for someone who might be naturally empathetic to be able to do that. So, you know, well done and being able to, to make that decision because it, it, in the end, you're doing it well, for the right reasons.
0: Sure. And I think there's something that when I was in my coach training, uh, there was an exercise or a question frame that always stuck in my mind and, and just rang rung true. And it was the question to say, imagine you're having a conversation with someone who is telling a sad story and then you start to get emotional hearing their sad story. And the question was, where's your attention in that moment? What what are you, what are you paying attention to? And, and on the surface, it looks like you're feeling sorry for them and you're feeling their pain. Um, but if you really were to deconstruct where your attention is, I think, and I agree with the premise of this question, um, you're actually not paying attention to them at all. You're trying their story on. You're know, you thinking, wow, if that was my grandma who died or that was my dog had been run over, if I'd lost my job or if my wife left me, how would I feel? That's what's bringing the emotion to the surface. Mm. Uh, And so that just was like, oh, my goodness. So if I'm getting emotional hearing someone else's story, I've lost the clean space. I'm no longer serving them. I'm now focused on me. Uh, so, that would be very unkind and, and not at all what they've asked for. So, that's helped me really just go, I, why would I try on your story? Why would I wade into your highs or your lows? Um, then I, I'm, I'm no longer useful.
2: Yeah, brilliant. I, I really like that approach. And we don't, it's very rare to hear people that are in the coaching world speak around that. And I think it's uh, a really important asset to have. Let's dive into insecurity. Where do our insecurities usually stem from?
0: Yeah, I think this is a really predictable and universal problem. So I um, I love Anthony Robbins' work on the six core needs. To me, uh, I think that's his finest contribution to the human behavioural space. I think it, it supersedes Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, so he would say the third need we have is the need for significance. And we need to know that we matter and, and we crave attention and acceptance, uh, validation. And that's that's a human need, every, every single human feels that. And so that need is inbuilt from the ver- very beginning, um, but the child experiencing that need has no capacity to, to self validate or meet that need internally. So they have to outsource it. Mm. They have to meet that need externally. Uh, and they work fairly early on that there are there are some games they can play that increase the chances of getting that externally all right, what have I got to do for you to like me? What have I got to, what performance have I got to do so that you'll accept me? What clothes have I got to wear? What car have I got to drive? What job have I got to get so that I get my need for significance met externally? So I think that's inevitable. The child does that. Um, but the problem is they never get it fed back perfectly. Mm. You know, that system has a diminishing returns. Even, even loving parents are never always there for their kids. You know, so... So soon that child and goes, hang on a minute, there's, there's gaps in this feedback. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Maybe there's lack, maybe this is a reflection of me. If I was better, maybe I'll be getting more affirmation, more love, clearly this must be, mean I'm not not good enough. So I think that's what, be, that's what begins the process. Uh, and it just gets exacerbated because it goes unreviewed. So I, I would say that is the big problem for, for human beings. We create these strategies that service for a season, and we never go back and check on them, mm-hmm. and so they're still the ones running, even though everything has changed. The complexities of being an adult, an adult, are still being dictated by the strategies of the child. And so, yeah. that's a recipe for disaster every day of the week.
2: Yeah, it, it certainly is, and it it kind of it's kind of funny you talk about that happening as a child and and what's happened with social media is the that need for significance is kind of there as well and the same thing happens right it's all around who likes me who likes what i'm wearing today who likes what i'm saying who who likes and then the next minute the algorithm changes and there's less people liking and less people commenting and they're going where's my significance in this world again and they're going through the same trap
0: exactly right social media just just speeds up the process makes it you know more visible um, more painful. So yeah, I think that's, that's why people are insecure.
2: Mm. So, so how do people, how can people identify for themselves their root cause of the insecurity rather than the symptoms that are lying on the surface?
0: Mm. Uh, well, this kind of starts the process of the seven practices. Um, so the so practice one is to step into the light. Uh, you know, Yoda says named must your fear be before banish it. You can, Yeah, so I think the great challenge is an accurate diagnosis of the problem. And that's, that's you know, coaching. What, what problem are you actually solving here? Because if you invest time, money, energy into solving a symptom, well, then it's ultimately wasted. Um, so I would say a bit of gentle inquiry to go, okay, so what what actually are you afraid of? Um, it's a really useful question. And and typically the response goes something like this, Um you know, it's a vulnerable question to start with and then, and then a person will kind of go, well, to be honest, I think I'm most afraid of either failure or rejection. You know, whatever their language is, it often is grouped in one of those two things. Um, and that's, as, that's often as deep as anyone goes examining their insecurity. Uh, but that's, that's so abstract and mm-hmm. makes the problem worse because if you're afraid of failure, that's the deepest level of your fear. Well, the only way to never fail is to never try. And like, that's not a tenable solution. So, or the only way to never be rejected, if that's what you're most afraid of, well, then don't ever put yourself out there ever again, never have a different idea or obsess about pleasing every single person for the rest of your life. So just a little bit of observation of that kind of highlights the fact that that can't be the problem. So, so the next question is the game changer because it just drops it down one level deeper and turns the lights on and, and lets you see exactly what's going on. So, um, the key question I like to use is, okay, so, and, and if you were to fail, uh, or, or if you were to be rejected, uh, what would that say about you? And I think that kind of, it brings it home and realize, and and they kind of realize, my goodness, I'm actually not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of the personal implications of failure. If I was to if I was to fail, then that makes me a failure. It's now personal. If I was to be rejected, now I am not worthy of love. You know. So when you really expose that, then it's clear that we're not actually afraid of what's happening on out there. We're afraid of what we think is happening in here. We're afraid of our own opinion of ourselves. So to frame the problem like that, uh, I think's exquisite because. It just brings all the control to solving the problem back in house. You know, if you think this problem's created outside of you, you look outside of you for it to be fixed. When you realize the problem's simply your own opinion of yourself, or then you can begin the work of reviewing those opinions and changing them.
2: And do you think this is something that people can do on their own, or do they need someone to actually allow them to come to terms of understanding that it's not a roadblock in life, but a door that can be opened?
0: Well, practice five is get help from someone who doesn't care about you. So, you know, I love Joseph's, Joseph Campbell's uh, hero's journey metaphor, you know, cause he says the hero needs a guide and there's always a guide. There's always a Gandalf, a Yoda, a Dumbledore, a Mr. Miyagi. They're not the hero, um, but the hero will not make it without the guide. Uh, so I think the reason why this is true in solving insecurities is because the way our brains gather evidence to to bolster whatever we believe is true, the moment you form an opinion of yourself when you're young, uh, that opinion will naturally gather its own energy and, and momentum. It will become true for you, and you'll have all the evidence that you know. It's not a story; it's your lot. It's how things work for you. So, to be objective to that story is so difficult. You know, to get out of your own head and have a look back in. We're subjective creatures. So, to be objective in your own life. Um, very, very difficult to do on your own. So I would say the role of a coach or mentor or teacher or whatever that role is to take you out of the story and into process, get some distance from your own stuff is going to be an essential part of the reframing of your
2: own opinions. So what role do parents play during those formative years to, I don't know, it's not protect, but to kind of ensure that the because we're all gonna have, we're gonna we're gonna create some story some belief around ourselves mm. but what can what role does that parent have or parents yeah. have
0: it's a great question I get asked all the time because um, you know when when I take people through this process often they think about their kids they think oh my goodness I've formed some limiting stories but what are, what are stories are my kids forming right now oh my goodness and how am I ruining their life as their parent how do I not ruin their life Um But the thing I I find most amusing about the privilege of being invited in the people's world to kind of deconstruct their storytelling is that it's often innocuous events that create the most chaos for them. It's not the big, bad, terrible things. So even perfect parents can't prevent their children telling interesting stories. (laughs) So that's really great to come to terms with. Um, your kids are sense-making creatures with limited awareness, limited emotional intelligence, limited skills. They will personalize painful moments against themselves without a shadow of a doubt. That's the only thing that can happen. So if you kind of come to terms with that already, um, then your role as parents is 100... If you want to be useful, the only chance you have of being useful is to model what it looks like to rewrite your own stories. If you put your life on hold, to serve your children and tell them the world's your oyster. You can do whatever you want. You know, whatever you set your mind to, you can achieve. And you yourself have not lived that. Uh, the hypocrisy of that will be horrific. If you want to, if you want to be useful, show them that you yourself have found limitations, insecurities, and, and you found a way to overcome them and model it. Let them see the pain, let them see the joy. Uh, just show them it's possible, prove to them it's possible.
2: Show them that you're human.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: And so before we uh, dive a bit further into the book, Unhindered, you started the one minute coach segment that is on multiple radio stations around Australia. You know, what was the backstory to getting live on air? uh so
0: the transition between pastor and coach was chaplain um i got i saw in the paper that when john howard first made chaplaincy funded for for high schools i saw the local high school was offering for chaplains i thought gee that'd be really interesting i reckon i'd I'd go okay at that and it was a time when i was kind of exploring what could be outside the church as well Uh, anyway um I went to the school. One of my mates actually was really keen on the role himself. He'd been inside the school working as a teacher's aide and thought that role was his anyway. So I said, oh, mate, I don't want to cut your grass. Um, would you mind if I interviewed for that role? And he says, oh, go for your life. You can you can put in an application. I'll get the job, but you're welcome to put in an application. <laughs> oh, cool, thanks. Uh, and anyway, I got the job, um, much to his chagrin. Uh, it ended up working out well for both of us, but so i became the school chaplain the school had no idea what a chaplain was supposed to do the principal on day one said "Jamin, you're not a parent you're not a teacher you're a chaplain just go and just go and be the chaplain (laughs) (laughs) all right great so it was a real exercise in backing myself because there's 800 kids and i'm supposed to go be friends with each of them and um, some of my insecurities about my own school experience showed up there, that's for sure. Uh, long story short, one of the crazy ideas that I had in terms of how I could make a difference in the school was to share a, a short insight on an assembly every week. So I pitched the idea. The principal was a bit dubious. He says, well, look, it's got to be funny, meaningful, memorable, not overtly Christian, something that they can take home with them. And if it's outside those parameters, you'll get mauled. <laughs> so I'm like, oh boy. Every Thursday morning I'd get to school and I'd be I'd just sweat for the first day I'm thinking, what am I going to say on assembly today? Um and called it Chapo's thought of the week. Anyway, um, it turned out that I found a way to do that semi-effectively. The kids loved it. It got a bit of a cult following. Kids used to look forward to assembly just for that thought of the week. And then I'd print them in the newsletter and although it was super hard, it was the most challenging public speaking experience of my life, you know, you kind of do one thing that terrifies you, then you realize, oh, well, that that went okay. If that was possible, I wonder what else is possible. And so when I left the school to start my coaching business two years later, I just thought, I wonder where I could take that idea of a short thought of the week and apply it elsewhere. So my first thought was radio. I went to the local radio station and said, I got an idea. They said, yeah, all right, um, you'll have to pay for that. So it cost me a fortune. I think I might have paid two grand a month for the right to do a thought of the week on the radio station for two months. And then I was like, I can't afford this. But I kind of proved the concept and you get through one door and it leads you to the next. And so I, I said, look, I'm already doing it on this station and went to another station. And and they, because I was already doing it there, I didn't have to pay there Um and then one led to the next. And I just kept telling this story and, uh, yeah, a whole bunch of interesting connections until... Um, and, and because I, I had the, the church background, the Christian, the Christian radio network was the, the, the most obvious open door for me. Um, and so, yeah, to present that content there um, in a really meaningful way that was not overtly Christian, but really um, helped them reach a wider audience with positive values, uh, yeah, so so that's kind of where it started, um, and then yeah, five years down the track, I've got three hundred and sixty-five of those segments, and then the book's just about to come out. I thought for the day, every day of the year, and yeah. definitely the hardest writing I've ever done in my life. Uh, but
2: yeah, brilliant, brilliant. I love it. And you, you, you know, in in recent years, you've created the Insecurity Project. You know, what is that all about?
0: Yeah, well as a coach, I was always, I'm very pragmatic. I want to know why. So I was I always had an aversion to behavior management uh, and thought, no, no, there's got to be deeper reasons why people stay in dysfunction rather than just the need to be better and try harder and more disciplined. So that was always a foray into beliefs rather than behavior and, and the world of limiting beliefs. And so then I kind of realized the deepest of those limiting beliefs were always personal. And, and so insecurities, And I I thought if I could get good at overcoming them myself and understand the modeling for how to help other people, I I think I could be useful. So that's kind of all my coaching anyway, focused on dealing with limiting beliefs. Um, And then I just thought, I I really think there's a great need for a clear model around insecurity. It seems like a global issue. People suffer greatly for not knowing how to fix this. I think it's a problem that can be solved, not just managed. And so I went to my business coach at the time and said, I'm rebranding. I'm going to call myself the Insecurity Project. He said, no, 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 that's the wrong name. I mean, it goes against all business principles. You can't pitch the problem. You should be the security coach or the confidence guy, the self-esteem expert. You can't be the insecurity guy. Like, uh, you know, people are insecure about being insecure, so no one's going to put their hand up and say, hey, Jermyn, I'm insecure. Can you come help me? And so it really knocked the wind out of my sails for a couple of days. Until I had a good hard look at myself and went, He's not your mum, Jamin. Like, it doesn't really matter whether he gets it or not. Like, what do you want? I'm like, what well, all I want is to solve this problem at a global level. Cool. What are you gonna do about it? All right, well, I'm gonna be the insecurity project. So it's kind of this flag in the ground. Uh, right, I all in. This is what I'm gonna do. May as well name the elephant in the room and um be all in on that problem. So that 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 was it and it was interestingly, it's almost been a, an SEO masterstroke because there's literally no one else in the world who has gone after that one word so overtly. So, turns out people, some, someone searching overcoming insecurity in in Boston or in Auckland or in London, they find me. They listen to my podcast. I read my book. Um, so, that's that's what it's all about. It's 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 really ending unnecessary suffering. There's a bunch of suffering that shouldn't be avoided, even if you could. There's a bunch of other suffering which must be avoided at all costs uh, because it leads to madness. Um, You don't work at how to solve insecurity. It will destroy you uh, and create chaos for those around you. So it's a a really important problem for the world. And, uh, yeah, one that 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 problem makes sense to me. And so it would be unkind of me to hold back uh, uh, a way of thinking that I think could be useful.
2: Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. And uh, obviously, you've, you spoke about there around the podcast as well. So, you know, for those listening, if you want to check out the Insecurity Project podcast, it we does a weekly 10 minute segment and sometimes has special guests on there, which can go a little bit longer than the 10 minutes. Um, so check that out. Mm. Un, unhindered, you know, we, we've kind of spoken a little sporadically about it so far. You know, it's the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity. Who is the book for? Um,
0: yeah, well, that's a good question because one of the, the key pieces of the puzzle that came to me as I was drifting off to sleep one night deep in book writing mode was the impact of insecurity on performance as we age. So I would say insecurity is probably useful in your 20s. Um, in fact, it can be rocket fuel. Mm. Some of the world's leading performers are driven by the need to prove something. And that's why they're so motivated against all odds, against all barriers and boundaries. There is no, no is rocket fuel. Um, So so I'm not, I don't think, like I get invited to speak at schools about insecurity and people go, oh, it's so wonderful. If I knew this stuff when I was at high school, I'd be so, so, so good for me. And I think, uh, they're a bunch of little shits. Like they don't want to know this yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like... They're, uh, they're not ready for this conversation. So when you're young, you're not ready to be wrong. You've got to go do your stuff and make a mess. And yep. So, and, and likewise, I think if you get too old, like uh, you've lived with this story a whole life, it's, the longer you live with it, the harder it's going to be un- to undo. So I would say that the 35 to 45 window, if there was ever a time most conducive to personal change work, especially with insecurity, that's right in the sweet spot. I think it's like a bell curve, so there's always outliers, don't let me hear, don't, don't hear me say you can't change. You can change whenever you want. Uh, and it's never too late until it is, um, you, you know. But so long answer to the question. So I would say um, this book is for, for midlife. Um, I think that's when people are ready for conversations about this. Um, and, and I would say it's for people with skin in the game. So I, I love working with entrepreneurs and leaders and business owners because they've got skin in the game you know, employees, people with an employee mindset, probably just as insecure, but I don't think it's costing them as much. So there's less motivation to deal with it. But if it's all you uh, and your performance is is capped by what's going on internally, you're highly motivated to deal with this and you can see the reason why it it has to happen. So people who are ambitious for something more um, middle of their life uh, will find this book very relevant and useful.
2: Yeah, very, very good. And you know, what will, what will people learn? What will be the biggest lesson that people will learn from reading unhindered? And especially when we talk about the insecurity that inhibits human performance and potential?
0: Um, Yeah, I think they will learn that it's actually very scientific and and it's a system. Um, I love systems thinking because if you see it as a system, Like most people see their behavior as weird or broken or weird or mysterious or unknowable. And so what do you do with that? You just kind of got to cope with it and suppress it and run away from it. But if you realize that people work perfectly and that behavior is just the end of the assembly line in the factory of your beliefs and and that everything you do is actually working for you, even the stuff you complain about, uh, you just kind of realize you've set up your life very strategically. Um, and if it's if there's a strategy, there's an intention. If there's an intention, you can understand that. If you can understand it, well, then you can deconstruct it. If you can deconstruct it, you can change it. So, I love frameworks. You know, I think the way out of fear is always into a framework. It's always into a process. I got a. You know, my son's almost fourteen. He wants a job at Macca's we go through drive-thru and he's looking at the little kids in their work and he's thinking how can I ever do that dad like I don't know what to do I don't know how to make burgers I'm like well I get it but that's exactly what everyone feels like on day one but they find out there's a process there's no guesswork you just trust the process and they're not afraid you know same at hospital you go into the emergency ward you're in chaos but the triage nurse is not in chaos is like, well, there's a process to follow, checks and balances, nothing surprising is going to come in the door. And so they trust the process and they're not in case. So I think insecurity for most people seems like this weird, mysterious, you know, unsolvable problem. You'll read this book and just go, oh, okay, it's just like any other problem. It has already been solved. And so if you can get your head around that, then you go, Oh, well, then all you need to solve it is the proven framework. And someone skillful enough to hold you in the space until it works. And you too can be free from insecurity.
2: Yeah. Brilliant. Can you outline for us the, and you've already done the first and the fifth, but the seven essential practices. Uh, so people get an idea of what they'll go through when they read the book.
0: Yeah, sure. So one is to identify the problem as your own opinion of yourself, turn all the lights on accurately understand that. Um, the tendency when you get clear about the problem is to then go, well, why, you know, where did this problem come from? If my problem is my own opinion of myself, where did that start? Um, And often people naturally go back in their mind to painful moments of loss and lack of bullying of abuse and go, ah, well, that's, that's why I feel no good about myself because my parents were divorced or I got bullied or this happened to me or this didn't happen to me. Or it's, it's very common to position yourself as a victim. Um, That's not actually true or helpful. So practice two is 100% responsibility because you kind of, when you understand the nature of being a human being, you realise we're sense-making creatures. We go into the world and we tell stories about our experience. Uh, So we, we have negative experiences and we get to decide why they happened and what they meant about us. Excuse me. And it's off the answer to those questions. That's what impacts our future, not the event itself. So it turns out we're not the actor in the story written by someone else. We're the storyteller. We're the one with the pen and paper. So so responsibility is to kind of realize you already are responsible. You already created this experience. In fact, your whole life has been created by you. You're exactly where you've chosen to be. You may not have chosen what happened, but you always chose your response. So just position someone with the power. Um, Practice three is to stack the pain Uh, The only people who solve insecurity do so from a place of great pain. Um, The the interesting thing is just because something's killing you doesn't mean you have to pay attention to that fact. People smoke cigarettes every day. You'd think it'd be impossible in today's world. Not true. The way you smoke a cigarette is by not doing an accurate cost assessment. Um, Easy. Even though there's grotesque images on billboards and packaging, you can ignore them and keep smoking. But if you did pay attention to the cost and, and fully weighed the cost in every area of your life, it would become too painful to continue. Mm-hmm. And every cell in your body is hardwired to avoid pain. So insecurity, exactly the same. We're all insecure. Insecurity is destroying you. That is true. You don't have to pay attention to that. If you did pay attention to that and do an accurate cost assessment and realize how bad the damage is and how it's continuing, it creates a threshold moment where you're like, huh, Look at that. Sure, there's pain involved in change, but nothing like the pain of staying the same. Um, Practice four is the other half of the motivation picture. Uh, If you just have a pain avoidance strategy, that runs out of steam the moment you get away from pain. So yes, be clear about what you don't want anymore, but what do you want instead? You've got to have a vision. You've got to have a dream. Um, If you're thinking about the hero's journey, uh, the reason the hero is risking their neck is because they have a quest and they're committed to it so the same is true in life without a quest without a reason what's the point of diving into fear and deconstructing storytelling there's no point to it it's going to be too hard so to desire is human so every one of us have a sense of what happiness and significance and success is often it's just been suppressed because it's dangerous and difficult you know but it's always there and those who solve it get back in touch with that dream and let it drive them forward um, practice five, get help from someone who doesn't care. So at some point you you will need help. That's, that is essential, but getting the right help from someone who's not going to get in the way, uh, you know, cause it's not Mr. Miyagi who's fighting the bullies. It's not Gandalf who's destroying the ring. You know, eventually they're not going to be there in the moment of crisis. No one's coming to save you. Um, this is your thing. If someone else could fix this for you, it would have already been fixed just by reading Instagram Like you open it, find a meme, you know, girlfriend, you are more beautiful than you would know. Never forget you are enough. Oh, thanks. Great. Problem solved. (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, okay, great. The problem's not someone else's opinion. It's my opinion. So at some point, the hero has to go face the dragon. That's inevitable. Everyone can see it from the start of the movie. We know what's coming and that's why we're watching because it's high stakes. The hero's either going to die or come out the other side reborn with the prize. That's the only two options. Mm. Same is true for us. At some point, you've actually got to go face his fear. Who am I? And am I, am I good? Am I worthy? Am I enough? Or am I not? There's only two answers. You either discover it's true. Your opinion of yourself is true. You are worthless. You are no good. And if you were to discover that's true, you can't recover from that. That's the end of the story. You die. Mm. Um, if, however you go and face that fear and discover it's actually not true. It's just been in your head. There's never been a monster at all. It's just been the thought of a monster. Then you actually come out the other side reborn. You are transformed by that discovery. Mm -hmm. And no one can do that for you. So specifically the, the hero work is all about the origins. It's all about this deconstruct, this journey back, to explore the storytelling piece, to to review the data around the opinions you've formed at the defining moments of your life and see whether it's accurate, see whether any other stories could be told. Um, Having deconstructed the old fear and cleaned the slate and rendered the old story senseless, you're then free to rewrite a new story. You're the one with the pen and paper anyway. You know how to tell stories. It's what you've done all the time. So you may as well use the pen to good effect and write a new narrative, a compelling narrative, a narrative that positions you um, capable of having the life you desire and then reinforce that narrative until it becomes a new default uh, so typically if people want to rush to practice seven when they see this model they go oh yeah i get it good you rewrite the story um, so that's some affirmations on my mirror and that's positive be positive and kind to myself good you're welcome to do that but the moment you get tired stressed or anxious uh, that old narrative will come out and take over like it always has at every chemo in your life thus far you cannot write a new one over the top of the old one. You have to deconstruct the old one first. Mm. Um, so that's the seven, and then the fruit of, of the seven is you get to show up unhindered um, by doubt or insecurity at your best where it matters most, which would inevitably lead you to grow forward. If you're un, if you're unhindered, there's nothing stopping you. So of course you'll take new territory, step out of comfort zones, find new levels of uncertainty, which will which will expose new levels of insecurity, and then the process starts again but the same seven practices that got you free last time will get you free the next time, and on and on. Yeah,
2: I like it, really, really good. Yeah, and one thing that's quite topical in 2020 is around our world leaders. And so we see them you know, displaying characteristics that are different. You know, We see some that will um, have more of a giving approach. We'll see those who come with more of a powerful approach, some that will come with an influencing approach in the end, they all still have insecurities as well. So what have you seen recently around the behaviors of world leaders and what, what do you feel that insecurity, what impact do you feel insecurity has on that? Yeah,
0: it's a dangerous subject, obviously, because everyone's got some pretty personal opinions about politics and pretty pretty upset very quickly. Um, But I would say two of the starkest examples that, that I would draw on between the difference between a secure leader and an insecure leader. Um, I think, you know, that Donald would have to be one of the most insecure people, not just insecure leaders going around. Um, so if you watch him objectively, he doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you, you don't ever feel like you're getting an, an honest and an objective conversations, an agenda, always playing a game, driving an agenda. Can't talk honestly about COVID. Can't talk honestly about the economy. (laughs) There's always spin. Um, I think the reason people love Donald and plenty do uh, is because he gives them a safe space to hide so they don't have to deal with their dysfunction. It allows them to hang on to their tribalism, hang on to their narcissism, hang on to their greed. He is not challenging any of that. He's saying it's beautiful and keep hanging on to it. And, And they love him more for that. I think the, the gift of Donald Trump is that he, he shows the world what happens when insecurity goes unchecked. Um, and, and there's no point getting upset with him. I used to get upset with him. And I thought, oh, that's crazy. Why would I get upset with a guy who's consistent? Like he was a madman on day one. He's still a madman on day whatever he's up to. He's just as mad as when he started. Why, why should I be surprised? Uh, you know, he's crazy, out of control. Great. That's what happens when... Insecurity goes unchecked. It, it is madness. Uh, I think uh, Jacinda Ardern, on the other hand, I don't know her, obviously. Hi, Jacinda, if you're listening. Um, she seems secure. She rocks up to a COVID press conference in a tracksuit. Um, she feels like she can talk honestly about the challenges and, and make more rational decisions. Obviously, not everyone agrees with the decisions, but you just feel there's there's no edge Um <laughs> it's much more honest and and transparent, you know, for that reason she's trusted more and and makes better decisions. So, you know, I I would say uh, there are very few secure world leaders. Uh, I I think Obama was a a secure, much more secure man than Donald Trump. Um, Yeah. So I I think it's, it is the great challenge of the world today. Our, Our big problems are made worse by insecure leaders and, and the world will be saved by secure ones, an important subject.
2: Mm, And I think maybe touching on that, and I was talking to someone earlier today around this, is that when you look at those who are more secure, they will use influence first and power second, whereas those that are more insecure will bring power to the front, which is obviously what we're seeing. If you look at the difference between Obama style and and, a Donald Trump style, Um, is where is, you know, power is important, but you need to use it at the right time. And it's just interesting to see, uh, when they're using it in their approaches and how that relates to security. Great, Yeah, I agree. That's really good. Yeah. Which is fantastic. We, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: I, I saw this question in preparing for today, and I thought it reminded me to get out and experience the well, world. Because I, I, I couldn't think of anything in the last year or two. The, the last thing I did for the first time was abseiling and rock climbing. Abseiling down a beach cliff, and and then climbing up. And it, both of those things just seemed impossible to me and, and terrifying. Um, extraordinary experience in so many ways. But I can remember sitting at the being down at the base of this climb. And the coach going, there's only two ways out. You either swim out or you climb out. And I just looked at it. It looked like a sheet of glass. How do you climb out of that? Um, But it turns out you need less than you think you do. You need less grip. You need less skill. You need less confidence. You need less certainty. I I got out of there. I I didn't swim. I climbed out of there. Um, So it was a profound experience in all kinds of ways. But yeah, that, that was the one that stuck out of something that I did for the very first time that was way outside my comfort zone. Um, Yeah, but it had a profound impact on me.
2: Yeah, well done, that's great. There's nothing more exhilarating than being totally out of your comfort zone and just having to, as you say earlier, trust the process of of the person who's coaching you through it. What is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: (laughs) Uh, How do I become the coach for the next American president? (laughs) <laughs> honestly, that, that is honestly a question that keeps me up at night. I, uh, how who, how to get that role? How? Well, yeah, I want that role. Uh, how? I don't know how to solve that question at the moment,
2: but that's the question top of mind. I'd love to say that I could make a call for you, but I'm not sure I'm yeah, quite yeah, at that exactly level. <laughs> it's out of my uh, pay grade potentially. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life?
0: Yeah, well, the the four-hour work week from Tim Ferriss was a book that's changed my life. Um, his his uh, definition of success and happiness was having time, money, and mobility, uh, which just blew my mind when I thought about those three things, and has been a big part of how I've geared my whole world since then. But I would add, I would add time, money, mobility, and meaning. I think mm-hmm. that uh, you know, there's no point having all those three things and then not doing something meaningful. Um, so to be able to have the time and, and the money and the capacity to, to set up your own lifestyle while contributing to something that is bigger than me and, and not even about me. That feels like a, the definition of an effective life to me.
2: Brilliant. Brilliant. You've given some great insights and, and shared some really good lessons today. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you?
0: Yeah, well, the podcast you've mentioned, but I think the book uh, would be the, the next logical thing. Um, so I'm, I'm prepared to give that away for free at the moment on three conditions. Um, anyone can have it for free if they're A, willing to read it. I mean, we've all got free books or bought books that we've never read before. So um, I'd be really happy to give it to somebody if they, if they said, yeah, I, I will definitely read this. Um, they would review it. If it's as good as I say it is, that you would leave a comment somewhere that someone else could read uh, highlighting why this is an effective modality. Um, and third, you would you would refer it. So we all know people that could benefit from solving insecurity. So if you found it useful, that you would pass it on to someone else. Um, so you can get that book at unhinderedbook.com. Uh, there's the audio version and the ebook version available if you'd like those as well. Um, but that that would be the the best place to really dive into this process and begin the work of solving insecurity
2: in your own life. Brilliant! And we'll pop those and uh, those links into the show notes. Everyone can find them easily. Jamin, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today uh, to hear about your story growing up in Collector, uh, which is in between Canberra and Golbin, and in in what you really thrived in is kind of your own little introvert world of solitude and reflection. To then finding your space where you are now in what people would consider as more of an extrovert type of space, where you're a pastor of a church, and then and then transitioning through to someone who's like a world leading expert in the area of insecurity through your insecurity project, the podcast, uh, you know, even doing your one minute segment uh, on the radio. Uh, to, you know, now about to release your fourth book and just kind of that impact that you're really creating on the world. You make things simple, you make it easy for people to understand and that is the power of, you know, being able to make a difference and an impact in people's worlds. Uh, So often, and everyone would probably connect with this, it's so easy to make things complex, but the most difficult, challenging thing in the world is to make things simple and simplification. Mm is sophistication. So Jamin, uh, Jamin sorry, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a real treat to speak with you and I just love the work that you're doing.
0: Well, thanks so much, Greg, thank you for me.
2: Thank you for listening to an, an, a fascinating conversation with Jamin Fraser, Unhindered Leadership on the Active CEO podcast. Today I wanna to talk to you a little bit about what makes a highly successful person so good? They're able to focus their attention on something and ensure that they shield themselves from distractions and compartmentalize things that they can deal with later on. It's really fascinating. It's a double-edged sword in a way that one, they get to stay focused and avoid distractions. However, they quite often compartmentalize those distractions um, and leave them undealt with for too long. And what it does is it actually builds up pressure over time. And when they then try to deal with them, they may not be in the right position to do so. so it's important as a leader or as a person that you are able to remove those distractions, but you set aside time to deal with those things that you have compartmentalized because otherwise they will keep compounding and the stress and pressure will compound and continue building up and will bubble over at some point. So, how can you focus your attention? but also find some time to deal with those things that um, are not so important at that time now if you need some port around how you can do this more effectively some skills around how you focus your attention and then also some strategies around how you can deal with the distractions or the the stuff outside of your your focused attention then please contact me at craig at nrgtoperform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website and together we can ensure that you can be free to really perform at a high level. Coming up in the next episode is the beautiful Liz Goddard where we talk about fractional remote teams. This is a fascinating and really useful in the day and age that we live in where The ability to go global is so much faster. The ability to outsource is so much easier. The ability to have an efficient and streamlined business that can be easily scalable up or down is really powerful. Thank you so much for listening today. We're at episode 149. Really excited to to hit the 150 mark uh, next week. I am Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO podcast where ordinary don't belong.
1: Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.